0: I have to say, I think we're very good about recycling. I like to compost. I've seen stasher bags. They did not have reusable Ziploc bags like that when I was growing up.
1: No, we were putting our peanut butter and jelly in that bag, coming home, putting it in the trash. That was it. We didn't think anything about it. But now... I mean, if you see somebody with a plastic grocery bag in the grocery store, everybody's kind of looking at them like, my goodness, it's a thing of the past. I got
0: a thousand canvas totes, okay? (laughs) And I'm carrying them all out like the Hulk.
1: Yes. Now, a nice canvas tote, you're definitely keeping that. We used to keep all those plastic bags under the sink in another plastic bag. Mm -hmm. Thing of the past.
0: And there might be a pretty good reason for that, according to a recent Consumer Report, right? Right.
1: Right. I'm glad you saw that because that's exactly what I wanted to talk about. This Consumer Report was talking about the chemicals that are found in some of these plastics and packaging that we use for our food. And that made me kind of nervous.
0: Because everything low-key is packaged in something. Even the oranges coming in a net. You can't just buy a couple loose. I mean, sometimes you can, (laughs) but they want you to use those little thin green film bags. Usually those are compostable, But
1: but a lot of times it's not. And if you don't put it in the compost, then what? Then what? <laughs> I'm TT. And I'm Zakia. And from Spotify, this is Dope Labs. Welcome to Dope Labs, a weekly podcast that mixes hardcore science, pop culture, and a healthy dose of friendship. This week, we're talking about the chemicals that are commonly found in food
0: packaging and lots of consumer products. We want to know more about them and how they impact our
1: health and environment. Let's get into the recitation. All right, CT. what do we know? Well, we know that there's a lot of single-use packaging all around us. I mean, we grew up during a time with, you know, the Ziploc bags, Mm. all the bags for fast food, pizza boxes, everything like that. And so at this point, it's almost unavoidable. Grocery bags, it's just a part of the world culture. And I think what we also know, well, I can speak for
0: myself and many of my colleagues. (laughs) that (laughs) we're doing a lot of takeout. We saw that especially over the early stages of the pandemic, takeout Mm -hmm. and convenience food. Mm -hmm. There is a lot of packaging involved in that. If you're Mm -hmm. not going and picking a bell pepper, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, or picking a tomato off the vine, it's coming in one of those little plastic containers. Those products are often wrapped for your convenience and safety,
1: Mm -hmm. but they're made out of something. We also know that chemicals are everywhere, but not all Chemicals are created equal. Some of the chemicals that we come in contact with, like water, <laughs> which is a chemical, <laughs> it's made up of molecules. And so water and, you know, carbon monoxide are two very different things. Carbon monoxide, you don't want that much of, but water, we know that we need, <laughs> we need some of that every single day.
0: I think this is a very good example of the importance of moving past what you can see with your eyes. We talked about this in a previous episode when we spoke about oysters and seeing their health, but it's easy to look at something and say, huh, seems okay, just because you're looking at it and you don't see a lot happening with your eyeballs. But there's a lot past what these eyeballs can see. So what do we want to know? I want to know about some of these chemicals. What are they called? Are there different categories of them? Because the only two like bad guy chemicals I know about are BPAs and then just styrofoam in general. I know you're not supposed to put styrofoam in a microwave, (laughs) but I know there's more to worry about than that.
1: I want to know how these chemicals in the packaging, how they're affecting the environment, because we know the landfill, honey, we talk about it all the time. Everything Mm -hmm. is going into a landfill and we know that once it gets to the landfill, that that means it's becoming a part of our Ecosystem, yeah. E- ecosystem, right. So how is it affecting our environment? Well,
0: when you know better, you do better. Over the past you know, couple of decades, there's been a greater understanding of things that are around and just in the environment and how long it takes for things to degrade. And some things don't ever go away. So mm-hmm. what's the plan? Is there any policy around this stuff? How has the packaging industry responded
1: to these things? Like, what's the tea? What's going on? And I want to know what we can do in our day-to-day lives to not only protect ourselves, but protect the environment. How can we consume more responsibly? Because I'm going to be going to Burger King. That's one thing that I know for sure. (laughs) You love (laughs) a Whopper. (laughs) (laughs) I love a Whopper. I do. And I am going to be going to Popeye's. Popeye's Burger King hit me up. I mean, for real.
0: So let's jump into the dissection.
1: Our guest for today's lab is Justin Boucher.
2: My name is Justin Boucher. I'm the operations director at a nonprofit
0: science research and communication organization called the Food Packaging Forum Foundation. The Food Packaging Forum Foundation researches the chemicals found in food packaging and its environmental
1: impacts. So you've been hearing Zakia and I say this term, forever chemicals, and a forever chemical is defined as a PFAS, which is P-F-A-S. And we asked Justin to explain at a basic level what PFAS are and where we can find them.
2: We use the term PFAS, P A F A S, and it classically stands for per and polyfluoroalkyl substances. And the current definition, according to the OECD, the Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development, is that PFAS are any fluorinated substances with at least one fully fluorinated methyl or methylene carbon atom. And the main thing to know about these very simply, is that these are molecules characterized by having carbon atoms attached to fluorine atoms.
1: And this bond that Justin is talking about is the strongest known bond that exists. You think the bond between JT and Young Miami is strong? Well, this is stronger than that. (laughs) This means that it's virtually impossible for this chemical to break down.
0: The chemical properties of PFAS make them very useful for many consumer products. The
1: chemical structure
0: this carbon-fluorine
2: bond Makes them have a high water and oil repellency, as well as being very thermally and chemically stable. And research recently, over the past few years, has shown that they're used across many, many products in really practically all industries. There was a study in 2020 published by a research group that found over 4,700 different PFAS chemicals identified by the OECD that are known to be on the market or have been developed somewhere and used some time.
1: Justin says that PFOS has been found in some climbing rope, guitar strings, ski wax, artificial turf, and some cosmetics.
0: Cosmetics. <laughs> Not my skincare. <laughs> Not my foundation. All of those things. Basically, PFOS are there.
1: PFAS are found in lots of food packaging materials, but PFAS are man-made chemicals. And the problem is exactly what we just talked about. They don't degrade. So they stay around essentially forever, which is why they're called forever chemicals.
2: Many of them can start to break down in the environment a bit. Some of
0: them break down more than others, but none of them really break down completely. So we asked Justin to explain what makes PFAS stick around so long. It all goes back to this
2: carbon-fluorine bond. So
0: in organic chemistry, carbon-fluorine
2: is the single bond, and it has the greatest strength that exists within organic chemistry. It's very, very difficult to break this carbon-fluorine bond. So normally man-made chemicals in the environment that are made up of different types of elements connected together with different ways and different bonds, they can be broken down maybe by bacteria, maybe by environmental processes. Maybe they react to other chemicals and eventually they turn back into whatever they started with, just carbon molecules, water. But this carbon-fluorine bond does not break down easily in the environment like everything else does.
0: And when we say break down easily, that still takes quite a bit of time. Paper takes two to six weeks to completely decompose. and apple core takes two months. Now contrast that with a plastic bag. We're talking 10 to 20 years to decompose.
1: Right. And if that plastic bag has PFAS in it, those chemicals don't decompose with the plastic. They stay around for hundreds and hundreds of years. Over the past couple of years, PFAS has been found in paper and cardboard food packaging, plastics, and in some metal coatings. PFAS coatings are applied to these packagings to create a water and grease resistant food packaging like with burger wrappers or pizza boxes. And that's the reason why your pizza stays in the box and doesn't fall through the bottom by the time it gets to you.
0: And unfortunately, it's not as simple as avoiding one type of packaging or a food company.
2: Every food packaging material is different, right? Because your, your food packaging doesn't come with a list of ingredients like your food does. You don't know necessarily what's in there. So you might have one plastic or paper plate that is comparatively fairly clean, so to say, right, compared to one from a different manufacturer that uses their own formula, we can't point the finger and say, this one packaging is different or better from this packaging, because we don't have the data. But all we can say is that generally, right, non-inert materials migrate chemicals. We know that there are thousands of chemicals that could be used in this type of food packaging, but because we don't know what's there, we take a precautionary approach with how we use it to avoid potential chemical exposures that we don't want to have.
1: A non-inert material is a material that will change over time or decompose. An inert material won't change at all. So there's no chemical reaction that occurs in its lifetime.
0: It may seem intuitive to avoid those chemical exposures. You can say, well, I'm not eating the wrapper,
1: so... (laughs) (laughs) I have accidentally done that. Mm, Haven't we all? You know when you're eating a burger and the cheese is on the wrapper and you want to just get that little bit... Yeah, I've eaten it.
0: (laughs) You should have left it behind, friend. (laughs) (laughs) It's too hard. Justin says we should be concerned about how these chemicals might migrate into our food.
2: It's one thing for the chemical to be in the packaging. It's another thing for it to then actually move into your food, a process called migration, and then expose people who are eating that food, right? There was a recent study that came out that showed that PFAS migration increased when the food had a high fat content, when it had a high salt content, when it was acidic,
0: and during higher temperatures. Uh I think I saw something on Netflix that told me that those were all the components of good food. <laughs> <laughs> There's a whole cookbook about that.
1: <laughs> yes. And that sounds like all of my favorite, favorite treats. <laughs> high fat, high salt, and hot. Okay. And I think mm-hmm. a lot of us microwave our food when we get home. And a lot of time it's in the packaging. So, Yeah. That's not good.
2: And the reason for that is because plastics and also paper and board are what we call non-inert materials, which means that the chemical structure of these materials is not fixed. The chemicals inside the material are not bound and they don't stay in the material. They're kind of able to float and move and migrate into the food, right? So when you
0: expose these non-inert materials to lots of heat, the molecules move more. Those molecules are cupid shuffling right on out of the paper and into your meal. That's wild to me. <laughs> One of my friends told me that she got rid of all her plastic Tupperware and only uses glass. Mmm. She might be onto something.
1: She's ahead of her time, and Justin agrees. A really simple thing to do to avoid
2: exposure to chemicals in food packaging in general is to instead use what we call inert food packaging materials. And the most common examples of this are stainless steel, glass, and many kinds of ceramics.
1: We wanted to learn more about some of the environmental and health impacts of PFAS. According to Justin, there are two factors that go into a risk assessment. One is exposure to a chemical. So how likely are we to come into contact with it? And number two is the hazard of the chemical. So is it going to cause an adverse effect on my body or the environment?
2: First of all, the exposure part, the fact that PFAS are so stable in the environment, and they don't necessarily disappear, means that the exposure to them is potentially very long-term. And there's been multiple what are called biomonitoring studies, which measure fluids in our bodies. Usually it's blood or breast milk. There was a study from the German government just a few years ago, and they measured 12 different types of PFAS in the blood of over 1,000 children that were aged 3 to age 18 during the second half of the 2010s, 2015, 2017. And they found that 100% of those 1,000 children all had detectable levels of PFOS, right? This very classic PFOS in their blood. And the other PFOS they looked for were also detected as well,
0: although at lower levels. You know, this reminds me of a movie that talked about some of this stuff. What? It's the Hulk. Mark Ruffalo, he's in this movie (laughs) that talks about Pfas basically.
1: Exactly. Dark Waters. It was about DuPont and their production of non-stick coatings, and those non-stick coatings had Pfas in it. And what happened to a town that was located near that factory, so they experienced a lot of runoff into their water, and a lot of people got sick, and there was some folks that also died because of their exposure to these chemicals. This is a true story. That was not fiction. That was real.
0: And it had me looking at my nonstick skillet like,
1: <laughs> et tu, Brute? And it seems like we
0: need to look at everything. Your Ziploc bag, the wrapper, like mm-hmm. rope. I mean, just everything. Justin told us there are lots of studies measuring PFOS exposure in the environment.
2: Most commonly, they measured groundwater. They measured ocean water around the world. Big ships went around, took water samples off the side of the boat, checked for PFOS concentrations.
0: And these studies are measuring PFAS in groundwater, ocean water. One study even measured PFAS in the blood of Arctic seals. Mm, I hate to tell you, but the results showed that there were PFAS in both the ocean water and in the blood. And the
2: concentrations change over time. So we can see when a chemical has been phased out, we can watch the concentrations in ocean water slowly decrease. So
0: it's not all bad news. What we can see is when a chemical has been phased out, you can measure, you can detect the concentrations decreasing over time, slowly but surely. And scientists saw this
1: by measuring ocean water and the PFAS in it. Justin told us about another study from just last year, so 2021, where they tested the breast milk of 50 mothers, and they were able to detect PFAS in every single one of their breast milk. And overall, they found 16 different PFAS chemicals. This
2: included what are known as shorter chain compounds that were used or created to replace kind of these legacy older PFOS chemicals like PFOS and PFOA. So it's not only just these older ones we phased out that are being detected. There's also the newer generation, and that's exactly what everyone should and wants to avoid. You don't want to replace a hazardous chemical with another one that's also hazardous.
1: Yes, you heard that right. Folks are in the lab making new PFOS materials that might not be able to be detected by the technology that's currently available. But there are some good guys out there that are working really hard in the lab to develop alternative materials that aren't hazardous.
0: So it's clear that humans and our environment are being exposed to PFAS regularly.
1: We have found it in our blood, it's in breast milk, it's everywhere.
0: It's even in the Arctic Circle. What (laughs) are we doing with PFAS up there? So now that we've covered the exposure factor, let's get into the hazard factor. Justin told us that studying the hazards is a bit complicated. It requires a lot of testing and there are many endpoints that indicate impact.
2: Over the years, Various PFAS have been reported in the scientific literature to be associated with various different health effects that were adverse. It doesn't apply to all chemical or one chemical, but there's been reports of associated metabolic and cardiovascular disease, adverse developmental effects in fetuses and in children, and there was a more recent study that looked into PFAS exposure and the effects on the immune system function, especially in the context of antibody responses to vaccines. This became a topic with the COVID vaccine. And there was some evidence to show concern that PFAS exposure, at least some of them, may contribute to reducing our ability for our immune systems to function.
1: This is wild. Yeah, I would have never guessed that PFAS and the COVID vaccine would be overlap in any way.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I I don't like it.
1: It's scary. (laughs) It really is.
0: When we consider the body of research on PFAS, remember, Justin told us there are over 4,700 types of known PFAS and they're kind of different. They're really different, actually. But when we consider where the most research is on PFOS, there are two most popular ones, and they are PFOA and PFOS. They've been
2: investigated for decades, and after lots and lots of research, they were found to be persistent and harmful. And they were banned globally under the United Nations Stockholm Convention for almost all uses worldwide. So, except for very, very few uses that are limited, they're just not allowed to be used everywhere.
1: The United States signed the treaty, but has yet to ratify it. So legally, nothing has to be enforced.
2: It's really difficult to study sometimes the effect of these chemicals because it's not possible or even ethical to do science experiments on people, right? We can't just expose someone to a chemical and see if they get sick or have some disease in 20 years. So instead, scientists have to rely on doing animal studies, often with mice or rodents, to really understand what the effects could be. We also use what we call in vitro studies, so in petri dishes, looking at bacteria, or using computer models, comparing the properties of a chemical to other chemicals to see if we expect the effects to be similar. And there are recent studies looking at various PFAS that link them to different endpoints, including more developmental effects in these rodents, reducing their birth weight, reduced survival rate of some of the rodents that were exposed. There's kind of an increasing level of concern for this group of chemicals as more and more people look into all these different
0: endpoints. So, this is wild because multiple things are happening here. Mm -hmm. As soon as somebody says, okay, we've identified this type of PFAS that is harmful, the company says, all right, slight change, new chemical. So, if you're still looking for old chemical X, people are now using chemical Y. -hmm. And does that even matter anyway? Because that treaty hasn't been ratified. (laughs) I have
1: questions. Exactly. So these companies are doing whatever they got to do to skirt, skirt the regulations and still get what they want, which is us consuming their products at a high rate so they can get those dollar, dollar bills.
0: So if we know this, I mean, somebody has to care, right? Mm -hmm. Are there any policies or industries that are responding to this? What are folks doing to address these issues?
2: So in the EU, at least There's a law that the manufacturers of food packaging are legally responsible that their food packaging is safe. Now, the exact way that they ensure that they're safe isn't always exactly clearly prescribed based on the food packaging material type. And for paper and board food packaging in the European Union, there's not currently what's called harmonized regulation Plastics, for example, have a much more detailed regulation with a very specific list of chemicals that can and cannot be used. Paper and board does not yet have harmonized regulation for this that gives exact guidance. But it is the legal responsibility of the food packaging manufacturer that the product that they put on the market is safe.
1: You know, I don't know if I trust these big businesses to do us <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Like, that's a lot of responsibility. And with that responsibility means changing your processes, which means you might be spending more money on packaging. So mm-hmm. if you're spending, you know, a dollar on food per packaging and now you have to go up to a dollar fifty, that's a big change if you're selling, you know, millions of burgers wrapped in that packaging.
0: They're saying it feels like some competing interest there, you know?
1: Yes. And if it's not enforced or it's not regulated like that, just as talking about the European Union, I don't know what they're doing in the United States, <laughs> but I have a feeling it's not always the right thing.
0: Mm-mm. Because there are just so many of these PFAS, it takes a lot of time and resources to test every one of the chemicals.
2: It can take years to complete
0: the test needed on one
2: endpoint or multiple endpoints. So there's a growing call from lots of different stakeholders and consumer health organizations especially to look at PFAS as a group and apply what's called the precautionary principle, which means if we don't have data yet to absolutely determine that a chemical is safe or is not safe, we don't just assume it is. We need to err on the side of safety and and rather be precautionary and not take unnecessary risks with chemicals we don't understand enough about.
1: That makes a lot of sense. I would rather err on the side of safety when it comes to these chemicals that are essentially going to end up in inside of my body and bloodstream and (laughs) everything.
0: In the EU, there's a political initiative gaining traction called the Chemical Strategy for Sustainability. It outlines goals for improving chemical safety in the next few years, and that includes PFAS.
2: There's a group of five member countries in the EU that are developing a restriction proposal that's going to try and propose to restrict or ban PFAS as an entire group from entire uses without having to spend the time to look at each chemical individually. And there's a lot of people who are really big proponents of this. Because they see it as being precautionary and also much more effective than playing what some scientists like to call whack-a-mole.
1: And there's been similar movements on PFAS concerns in the U.S. too. The federal government is starting to look at PFAS in drinking water. But on a state level, individual states like New York, Maryland, Washington, Connecticut, Vermont, Minnesota, and a few others are addressing PFAS, including those found in food packaging, through legislation.
2: This has been seen as good from a lot of consumer health organizations. It's led to a bit of confusion and a bit of chaos, unfortunately, of course, because each of these states, they're not necessarily coordinating with each other. They're all setting different requirements for which chemicals are allowed, what kind of reporting manufacturers have to give them to be able to sell food packaging in their state. The timelines are different when these new laws come into force. And this has really created a headache for a lot of the food packaging manufacturers we've spoken to who
0: really don't know what to expect. This is a great point. You know, nothing's going to happen overnight. So it could take a long time for us to see the effects of these new laws because a lot has to change. So let's take a break. And when we come back, we'll get into how companies are responding to PFAS concerns. We're back. And before we jump into today's lab, let's talk about next week's lab. Next week, we're talking about how minds change. We're talking to David McRaney. His book, How Minds Change, blew my mind and also told us dopamine isn't what we think it is. And it's actually involved in changing your mind. Make sure you check this lab out next week.
1: All right, let's get back to the lab. We've been talking with Justin Boucher all about PFAS, what they are, how they impact the environment and our bodies, and the policy response. But what about the food industry? How are companies addressing PFAS? There's still a lot of unknowns when it comes to PFAS research, and there are a few reasons why that is. One is that many companies want to protect their intellectual property and are reluctant to share the exact chemicals that they're using to come up with their products. And like we learned in our episode on nails, regulations on disclosing chemical use and safety vary widely across industries and regions.
0: Like we said earlier, there are a lot of different laws that are in progress in different states. So like, what should we be expecting? How are companies adjusting?
2: It's gonna take these companies time. They serve millions and millions of pieces of food packaging a day around the world. So to change their whole supply chain, work with their suppliers, and make that switch to non-PFOS food packaging is a big effort for them.
1: Justin told us it's also important to look at the fine print to see if companies are addressing PFOS in all stages of the supply chain, not just the consumer-facing packaging. Right.
0: Your food has to go through multiple steps before it ends up at the pickup window. Is there
2: packaging or material with PFAS in it during the processing of the meat or cutting of the potatoes and shipping it between manufacturers? And so far, we haven't seen so much discussion about those upstream uses of food contact materials. And I think that's really a next step that these big players are going to have to start talking
0: about.
1: Yeah, that's a very good point. Yeah, because we've been focusing on food packaging, but there's a lot that happens before it gets into that wrapper, honey. You know what I'm thinking about? You ever
0: bought like a sleeve of burger patties and there's like that little thin piece of paper that's coated
1: with something yeah what's on that (laughs) and we said earlier on in the episode that you can also find it in metals and so when we're thinking about any of the machines that are used to grind up meat to cut up slices to do anything there Mm. potentially could be PFAS in those metals nobody been saying nothing yeah conveyor belts Oh, uh, I
0: don't want to think about my food on a conveyor I don't want my vats, food on a conveyor belt.
1: Big, big vats. All mm. of these things are coming in contact with your food. And you have to think about that. I'm going to know my
0: next chicken's name.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> Henry, you've been
1: good to me. <laughs> this has been a lot, okay, to be fair. And you might be tempted to panic because... It's very overwhelming and it feels like there's literally nothing we can do. PFAS are everywhere. They're all over us. They're all up in our business and we can't escape. But Justin says that we shouldn't panic and it's not totally on us to manage PFAS.
2: I really want to avoid people from panicking and feeling hopeless and thinking that this is their responsibility. It's not something that the consumer should feel like they have to take on and be responsible for controlling. This is something that the manufacturers of the products that are sold to us and our governments that have mandates to protect public health are
0: responsible for ensuring. Justin says that the solution to PFAS might be bigger than simply trying to replace PFAS with less harmful chemicals and instead considering a completely different food packaging system. I think it's time that we start to think about ways that we can improve the system at its
2: core rather than trying to play catch-up and design new chemicals just to stick with the same kind of lifestyle. If you think about single-use products like paper and plastic wrappers and plates and cups, 50 years ago, we were relying on reusable materials. We were relying on reuse. You know, we were using ceramic plates in restaurants and, and glass containers. And this change towards this convenience throwaway lifestyle is really when we started to see this environmental pollution start to begin. And then now we're also discussing all these issues with chemical exposures.
1: This is such a great point that Justin is making. Reusable containers is nothing new. I mean, when we were kids, reduce, reuse, recycle, you know the thing. Mm -hmm. And it's the original way that things were done. I mean, for real, plastics only really started becoming really popular in the 1960s. It had been around for a lot longer, but not a part of every single person's everyday lives. Do we really need to rely on single-use packaging for every meal and every delicious treat?
0: Better pour that juice into a glass. Get that Capri Sun <laughs> out of here. But there's also a trade-off with all of this stuff. You know, packaging, some things that we may consider convenience are often really useful for folks to prevent waste on the other hand, right? So you mm-hmm. may want only one bell pepper or one avocado. You brought something to my attention, TT. Mm-hmm. This new technology that really puts PFOS to shame.
1: Yeah, I recently saw an article in Scientific American that talked about a spray-on wrapper that is completely biodegradable, antimicrobial, and it should help with reducing the amount of plastic waste that we have. So the research was out of Harvard, and they created this device that sort of acts like a cotton candy machine, and it covers the food in this fiber that washes away when you're ready to eat the food. Probably won't work for a sandwich, but it will work for your fruit. That is very, very cool. (laughs) And we've also started seeing a lot of food brands that are making the switch to other non-PFOS chemical alternatives. And that includes the company that owns Burger King called Restaurant Brands International. They have promised to remove all PFOS from their guest-facing packaging by 2025. So there's a lot of efforts that are being made in the food industry to help decrease our exposure to PFOS.
2: We are only here because we are chemicals, right? Chemicals themselves are not the problem. Chemicals make our health and our world possible, but we have to develop and manage and think about how to use them responsibly and not just short-sighted. You know, we need to think long-term about how do we develop, create, and use chemicals and when are new types of chemicals really essential?
0: Well, you heard the call. It sounds like we need more chemists, more engineers, more smart folks to think about how to solve these problems.
1: And we also need to make sure that the folks that are making the decisions about what is going into this packaging, that they know that we know, okay, we see you, and that we're not going to let them off the hook that easy. We as consumers are going to be checking in and making sure that they're very transparent with the chemicals that they're using in our food packaging. It's time for one thing.
0: I gotta admit, this lab made me think about things differently. And my one thing is gonna focus on this new device that I got as a gift and it's called a Lomi. The Lomi allows you to put your food scraps and waste into this little bucket and it basically simulates decomposition. You can add these little microbial tablets to it if you want to, but it just breaks down your food with heat and grinding into basically soil. And every time, I am stunned. Wow. And the soil even changes based on what I put in. I put a lot of leftover fried rice and orange chicken in
1: recently. And I said, ooh, that was greasier than I thought. So you can use that soil to then... Put it in my plants. I guess that's what compost is. But every time I'm like, no, you can't do this. This is alchemy. (laughs) (laughs) My one thing this week is for everyone to kind of look up what they have locally to be able to start composting if it's something that sounds interesting to you. So locally for me, there's Compost Crew, also another organization called Apex Organics. So I really encourage everyone to just do a quick Google if you're thinking about composting or wanting to reduce the amount of waste that you have coming out of your home. Do a quick Google search and find your local compost company.
0: That's it for Lab 74. Call us at 202-567-7028 and tell us what you thought, or give us an idea for a lab we should do this semester. We would like hearing from you, and I especially wanna hear what kind of reduce, reuse, recycle strategies you're using in your home. That's
1: 202-567-7028. Special thanks to today's guest expert, Justin Boucher. You
0: can find Justin on LinkedIn, and you can learn more about the Food Packaging Forum at foodpackagingforum.org or on Twitter at F-P-F Foundation,
1: And don't forget that there is so much more to dig into on our website. There'll be a cheat sheet for today's lab, additional links and resources in the show notes. Plus, you can sign up for our newsletter. Check it out at DopeLabsPodcast.com. And you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Podcast.
0: TT's on Twitter and Instagram at DR underscore TSHO.
1: And you can find Zakia at so. Dope Labs is a Spotify original production from MegaOm Media Group. Our producers are Jenny radelet mask and Lydia Smith of Wave Runner Studios. Editing and scoring by Rob Smirciak and Griffin Jennings. Mixing by Hannis Brown. Original music composed and produced by Taka Yasuzawa and Alex Sugiura. From Spotify, creative producer Miguel Contreras. Special thanks to Shirley Ramos, Jess Borison,
0: Yasmin Afifi, Kamu Ilolia, Kill Kratke and Brian Marquis. Executive producers from Mega Own Media Group are us, Titi Shodia and Zakia Watley.